let's get started. Let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I bring before you this message. You know what the words are that I've prepared. Give me to be articulative. Give me to be smooth in the delivery. And give those that are here this morning a blessing as a result of that. Strengthen me for the task, I pray. In the name of Christ, amen. As a parent, are you aware of the most dreaded series of questions that a pre-K child can ask? What is it, do you know? It's this series of questions. How far is it? Are we there yet, Dad? How much further, how much longer? Ever been asked that? I am so delighted that my daughter have, has children of her own. <laughs> it's a little bit of payback time for her. Max Licato speaks on this particular subject. He said that, of course, that time and distance is hard for a child to understand, and, and I, I can empathize with that as well. But Max says and writes that oftentimes we will give a, an answer like the child will ask, how much further, and we'll say 250 miles. And the child will say, well, what, what is 250 miles? And we tend to give a technical answer. We say, well, there's 5,280 feet in a mile, and so 250 miles is 1,300,000 mi- feet, rather. And the child will sit and listen to you quietly, and when you're done, he'll look up at you and say, Dad, how much longer? <laughs> well, Max got very creative with his own child. His girls liked to watch uh, The Little Mermaid, and so he would use the movie as an economy of scale. He would say, as long as it takes you to watch Little Mermaid three times, but he had to admit that ultimately he was not real successful in communicating time and distance to his young daughters. And I thought to myself, with all of his creative ability, what chance did I have when I had children that age? But one thing I did learn is not to say, we're almost there. (laughs) That'll come back and haunt you. Well, eventually, Max began to say, Uh, and developed a phrase that said, just trust me, enjoy the trip, and don't worry about the details. I'll make sure you get home. And then the phrase got shortened, and he said, "Uh, just trust me. You do the trusting, I'll do the taking care of details. You do the trusting, I'll do the taking care of details. And then eventually it simply got shortened to, you do the trusting, I'll do the taking That's the title of my message this morning, and that's what God wants you to know when you find yourself in a very confusing situation. Sometimes life throws us curves, and we're confused. Our text this morning is uh, John 11. I wrote Luke, didn't I? But I think it's John 11. Sorry. It's John 11. We'll call them the old-timer group. Yeah, right, right. The prime-timers, huh? Yeah, you might want to take your scriptures out to John 11. 
1 through 44, we'll be looking at. It's a passage of Scripture that has to do with Lazarus rising from the dead. And I, I wish to look at this passage of Scripture. We'll look at it verse by verse, tentatively, or uh, uh, scan the, the verses at least. And then we'll ask four questions regarding the text. Four questions that will be an application for us this morning. We find in John 11, verse 1, that Lazarus was sick, the Scripture says. And as a result of that, the sisters sent word out to Jesus and said, Lord, the one you love is sick. And Jesus responded by delaying, by doing nothing, by staying right where he was. For we read in verse 6, it says, Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now that's a strange response, isn't it? The writer John, in these first five verses, wants us to know that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He stressed that to us. In these first six verses, he stresses it to us three times. In verse uh, Two, it says, this Mary, who, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on his feet. Well, we know from that passage of Scripture that he greatly appreciated the act. He greatly appreciated the individual that did it. So that was one way the writer John expresses to us that Jesus really did love this family. The second is found in the third verse where it says, so the sisters sent word to Jesus Lord, the one you love is sick. And then the writer John reiterates this theme one more time in the fifth verse by saying, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we know that Jesus loved this family in a unique way. They, they were more than just passing friends. He had a deep affection for this family. And the reason John is stressing Jesus' love for this family it's because he knows that what Jesus is about to do does not feel like love to most people. Jesus knew that his delay would mean with certainty that Lazarus would die. He knew that pain and confusion and suffering would come upon the family as a result. So why does he delay? If he could be misinterpreted, and we see as we look at this passage, he was misinterpreted. Why did he delay? Why did, because he loved this family, and he loves us, and the reason he delayed is so that we might know about the resurrection. And it's found in verses 23 to verse 25. And particularly, I draw your attention to verse 25. It says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus wants to communicate to us his love, his great love. And he wants to share his personhood with us. He wants us to know that He is the resurrection and someday we too will rise and be with Him forever. Are you looking forward to that day? <clears throat> I am. Well, if we back up to the 21st verse, 
we find that Jesus finally gets to Bethany. And he's met by Martha first. And we will note that Martha's response to Jesus is the same as Mary's. The exact same word. But Martha comes and meets Jesus and says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, it sounds polite, but behind those words are a lot of pain. She's saying, Lord, we don't understand why you waited so long to come. We don't understand why you allowed such sorrow and suffering to devastate our family. And really, the essence of what she's saying is this. Where were you when we needed you? Didn't you love us enough to come? I think that's why, in verse 35, we see in this scripture, Jesus wept. As Ralph pointed out, the shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept. He wept because he knew that he had been misunderstood. And he knew that Mary and Martha thought that he was unloving. And we see in in verses 35 to 38 that Others who observed this activities, the other individuals that were present and seen this miracle, had various opinions as as well. Some of them, as we see in verse 36, uh, looked at Jesus uh, weeping and said, see how much he loved Lazarus? See how much he loved the family? But others, you note in verse 37, the but changes the direction of the text. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? In other words, he didn't love him enough to come and intervene. And so we find in verse 38, Jesus once more was deeply moved, deeply moved by being misinterpreted. And his one defense And his one great truth and reply to this confusion and the accusation is found in verse 40. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you will see the glory of God? Did I not tell you if you believed, you would see the glory of God? In essence, he said, You may not understand, but I'm telling you that if you believe, you will see. It's like Max. You do the trusting, I'll do the taking care of details. Life in the middle of a trial can be extremely confusing. Have you ever been there? Perhaps there's something in your life even today that is causing you to question God. Uh, Perhaps you have lost a loved one recently. Perhaps you've had health of afflictions that are perplexing. Perhaps you have financial difficulties, or perhaps you've been led down a twisting path and all of the plans that you make seem to go awry. And you're confused. 
and you're in the middle of a trial and you know it, and we find ourselves confronted, when we're confronted with disease, disappointment, delay, and death, we, we become confused. And we ask of God, why? Why aren't you there when I really need you? Don't you love me? Well, from our text this morning, I would like to ask four questions. We, we kind of quickly went through and seen the just of what occurred. And the four questions that I have are not profound questions, not at all. They're simple questions, but they clarify and summarize what's being taught in this particular passage of Scripture. The first question I'd like to ask then is who does God frequently select for perplexing trials? Who does he select for trials? Well, if you go to Scripture and look at the biblical characters, there's a lot of biblical characters that have been selected for trials. David was one. You see the passage in the screen is on Psalm 13. It has the language of a man in the midst of a trial. If you read the entire Psalm 13, it doesn't tell us what the circumstances are, but you know he's being tried heavily, and it ends up by saying, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to trust you. But he's perplexed in the center. So David was tried. Other biblical characters like Abraham was tried. He waited a long time for that promised child, didn't he? He was tried with his wife when he went down to Egypt and he, he failed that test. He was tried when he was asked to take his son to Mount Moriah. And then there's Job. Has there been anybody like Job that's been tried more than him? My greatest personal trial came when my son was diagnosed as having muscular dystrophy. MD is a devastating disease, different than MS. It is a disease that just keeps marching forward. I was a young man in my very early 30s when he was diagnosed, not a Christian very long, and we were given the diagnosis that he had muscular dystrophy. I knew what that was because there was two young men in our rural Iowa community that had MD as well and had passed away. And we knew, Addie and I knew what that disease was. And I felt betrayed by God. I felt like a lover that had been forsaken by God. I was so, quite frankly, I was angry even. In the week that I had this diagnosis presented to me, I had people in this little small rural farming community that knew Addie and I, everybody knew everybody in that little town, and they'd come up to me and they'd say things like, Don, I'm so sorry. I appreciated those comments. They were very kind to me. Towards the end of the week, though, we had a, a Bible study scheduled, it had been scheduled previously, and a visiting pastor was going to come to lead that service. He was a friend of the church. And as I went into the church that evening, he seen me enter, and I seen him quickly coming directly towards me. I expected a similar condolence. Don, I'm so sorry. But rather, he came up to me and very cheerfully said, Don, 
I see that God loves you also. He couldn't have hit me harder with a 10-pound sledgehammer. But the common thread of these biblical characters that I just shared with you is that God loves each of those. God tries those that he loves. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were close friends. David was a man after God's own heart. Abraham was known as the friend of God. And Job, it is said of him that no one on earth is like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God. Do you think God appreciated Job? You bet. He sure did. You see, if you find yourself in the midst of a trial that you don't really understand, know that God loves you. His love is not a pampering love, but it's a purifying love. It's a love that shows himself in his glory. It's a love that says, I am the resurrection. It's a love that reveals himself to us. And so we're not to measure the love of God by how much health or wealth or comfort that we have in our life. (coughs) Excuse me. But rather, we measure God's love by how much Himself He gives to us to know and to enjoy. Frequently, He gives us Himself in ways that cannot be ours without a painful season. If you demand that God love you the way the world expects to be loved in this life, then you won't know. Then you won't get to know really the God who loves you. You see, this God is a God that loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and he stayed two days longer. He let them walk through the shadow of death. And then he went and he showed them his glory. That's what our God does. And while our God never celebrates suffering, he repeatedly uses it for his glory and to reveal himself. And so the first question is, who does God give trials to? Those he loves. Those he loves. The second question is, what are we to understand when we're in the midst of a trial? What are we supposed to understand when we're in the midst of a trial? The answer to that simply is nothing. That's the nature of a trial. We don't understand what's going on. It's confusing. None of the biblical giants like Mary, Martha, David, Abraham, Job understood what was happening to them and God didn't expect them to. And God doesn't expect us to understand when we're in the midst of a trial. Max didn't expect his children to understand, but to trust. God sees us as kids. He doesn't expect our pre-K minds to comprehend. We don't have an obligation to understand when we're in the midst of a trial. We tend to want to do that. We want to know, God, why? Why is this trial come into my life? Why, God? You know, the book of Job is unique. I've done a lot of study in the book of Job, and I like the book of Job. And I find it rather unique, because the book of Job reveals to the reader why he tried Job, but never throughout the entire book 
is Job privy to that information? Never. God never tells him why he had all these trials. Now, Job and his friends got together, and they decided to explore why. They come up with all kinds of theories, and the friends were reprimanded as a result of that. You see, we all want to struggle to make sense of our, of our trial, but what's really being asked is that we don't need to understand, we need to trust. We need to trust. And we need to know that God can redeem the worst of tragedies and the most difficult things in life oftentimes prepare us for God's best. The third question that we ask of this text. What does God ask of us in the midst of a trial? We don't have to understand, but when we're in the midst of the trial, what does he expect of us? What does he ask? He asks that we trust in him. We trust in him. In John eleven fourteen to 15, it reads, So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. He wants us to believe. And when he was at the tomb, Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You see, in spiritual matters, believing is seen. In spiritual matters, believing is seen. The word seeing and believing sounds natural to us because we use an expression that is reverted. We say we see in order to believe. God says believe in order to see. You see, it sounds natural to us when we have that expression, seeing is believing. But God says again, he reverts that. He says believing is seeing. And both of those expressions are, are right when we realize that the first one, the one that says seeing is believing, is attributable to humans. And the other, believing is seeing, is attributed to our spiritual relationship with God. You see, in human affairs, that expression simply means that men are untrustworthy, and therefore seeing is believing. A company hires a new employee. He's confident about his abilities and he portrays that in his interview. And he has a good resume. But the company puts him on a 90-day probation period. In other words, we'll see. Seeing is believing in the realm of human performance. And it's right because oftentimes human affairs, <clears throat> human performances have not always Followed promise. But not so with God. He's never made a promise that he's not fully fulfilled. And consequently, to believe God is to place oneself in the place of blessing from which one will certainly see that all that is promised will be his in due time. 
You know, Satan wants to trick us on these two words. Seeing is believing. He wants us to see spiritual things with such light. He wants us to believe that spiritual things need to be seen before they can be believed. And so we misinterpret things like health, wealth, and success. We tend to think that those factors we believe because we have those factors. And even the Antichrist will use that deception. He will use that deception by having us uh, be confused with the placement of that word. But God wants us to first believe. He wants to see faith in our life. That is of utmost importance to us. And that's why in the middle of a trial, He expects us to trust Him explicitly. You know, a little boy fell out of bed and his mother asked him, what happened? And he said, I don't know. I guess I stayed too close to where I entered in. Well, we do the same thing with faith. It's tempting to stay where we got in and never move. But God wants us to increase our faith. Faith is a precious item in the sight of God. It's appealing to us as well. When we see faith in the lives of others, it's a very appealing commodity, isn't it? You know, consider this story a true story of George Mueller. I'm sure many of you are familiar with George. A sea captain tells this story of an occasion while he was on his steamship off the coast of Newfoundland. He had been on the bridge for nearly 24 hours, the captain had, traveling very slowly because of a dense fog and he was watching for icebergs. George was a passenger on board and he came to see the captain. He said, Captain, I need to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. That's impossible, snapped the captain. Very well, George said. If your ship can't take me, God will find some other way. But let's go down to your cabin and pray about this. Well, the captain looked at this man of God and thought, what a lunatic he is. But he went down to the cabin with him. And as they were going down to the cabin, he said, Mr. Mueller, do you realize how dense that fog is? And George says, no, my eye is not on the dense fog, but on a living God who controls every circumstance in life. Well, George knelt down, prayed a very simple prayer, and when he finished, the captain said that he began to pray. And as he began to pray, George put his hand on his shoulder and told him to stop, not to pray. George said, first of all, you don't believe that God will answer. And second of all, I believe he has already. And consequently, there's no need for you to pray about it. They stepped out of the cabin. The fog was completely gone. And on Saturday, George was in Quebec. That takes faith. We look at that kind of illustration and we think to ourselves, I wish I had that kind of faith. And we say to ourselves, well, I can't be like George. He was an extraordinary person. Well, he was. He was. But what are we to do as ordinary folks? We can strengthen our faith the same way that George strengthened his. See, on an occasion, George was asked the best way to have strong faith. And he said, the only way to know strong faith is to endure great trial. He said, I have learned... I have learned my faith by standing firm through severe testing. 
Great faith is developed by enduring great trials. God asks us to trust Him. He might give us larger trials. And in the accumulation of trials of life, these successes can strengthen our faith. You see, if your faith is weak, your work will never be strong. And so in the midst of a trial, we are asked to put our faith. We've looked at three questions, haven't we? We looked at who's the recipients? Those that God loves. What are we to understand in the middle of a trial? Nothing. Can't. We're not told what the reason for our trial. Third, when we're in the middle of a trial, what does God ask of us? Faith. He asks us to trust Him. And now the last question is, is what does God do when we trust Him? What does God do when we trust Him? Does He do anything? Well, Jesus exhorted them in our text that if they believed, they would see the glory of God. In other words, while believing, God would be at work and they would sometime in the future see. You do the trusting, I'll do the taking. God says to us today as well. And while we're believing, while we're trusting, God is at work so that someday we can see and we'll get a glimpse of His glory. And while believing, God is at work. You know, there is a verse in Scripture that summarizes this theme of this book perfectly. Let me turn your attention to Psalm 37. A psalm that I have appreciated and loved over the years. But it captures exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate to us in John 11th chapter. He says, this verse says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. And He'll do this. In other words, you trust, He immediately goes to work. The Scripture actually says in this particular passage that you roll your burden. Commit your burden means to roll your burden out to Him. And when you roll it, He begins immediately to work. When you roll it, you release it, you let it go. You wouldn't go bowling and throw the ball and run down the lane to try to retrieve it. Don't try to retrieve your trials either. Trust, trust in Him. Roll your burden to Him. And what will happen? He will do this. He goes to work immediately. And we can know it. We know it. Sometimes we can't see it. Sometimes we can't feel it. But we know that He does. And I like this verse because it concludes by saying, and He will do this. What will He do? He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn. Trust me, I don't have any righteousness. My righteousness is an imputed righteousness from Jesus Christ. And so that verse says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will do this. He'll reveal Himself to you. He'll reveal His righteousness to you. And that righteousness will be like the dawn, and the justice of your cause like the noonday. And so we're left with this. You do the trusting, and God will do the taking care of details. And someday, you will see. 
And if you get a glimpse of His glory in this life, what a privilege. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You that You, you work in a manner and a, in a fashion that we're not accustomed to. We think that love is being showered with physical gifts and being showered with success. And oftentimes when we stumble, when we fail, in our failure, you reveal yourself to us. You give us the greatest of blessings. So let us not despise our trials, but rather to trust and commit them to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.